Welcome to What Needs to Be Said. I'm your host, Alex Regan. Join me on a transformative journey as we explore the power of speaking our truth, overcoming adversity, and discovering our authentic selves. Through personal stories of origin, struggle, and emergence, we'll uncover the profound truth that connects us all. Just as I wanted readers of my book, What Needs to Be Said, to see themselves within the pages, my hope for this podcast is that you'll recognize yourself in each of our stories. Together, our collective storytelling creates a space for healing and helps us grow closer to who we really are. Oneness. Get ready to embark on this remarkable journey of self-discovery and connection. Welcome to What Needs to Be Said. Today I have with me Reverend Arda Itez, executive leader turned interfaith minister. She's spent 25 years researching consciousness, philosophy, human behavior, and ancient wisdom traditions. Her personal passions eventually led her to a desire to deepen her life's purpose. She followed her calling and left a high-profile, forward-facing international career in the cosmetics industry to attend seminary in New York City. After graduating, she dedicated her professional life to human rights, working with mission-focused, values-driven institutions in areas that included resource development and civil rights protections for LGBTQIA youth, facilitating dialogue on intersectionality and the empowerment of women. Today, as an established thought leader, speaker, and executive coach, Arta creates and facilitates holistic, integrative workshops for private, government, and academic institutions to develop human potential and shift social consciousness. As a humanist and existentialist, she teaches spirituality as the exploration, cultivation, and navigation of one's inner life and outer purpose through radical self-awareness and personal authenticity. Arda has married her passion and expertise as an international businesswoman, master facilitator, spiritual educator, inspirational speaker, writer, and human rights advocate to do what she refers to as the most important work of her life. Now let's get started. Welcome back to What Needs to Be Said. I'm your host, Alex Regan. Today I have with me my friend, Reverend Arda Itez. She's a humanist, existentialist, and a shamanic practitioner, along with an interfaith minister. <laughs> Welcome, Arda. I'm so excited to have you here with me today. Thanks, Alex. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Definitely. All right. So let's just jump right in. Folks, if you haven't been listening to the podcast, um, we talk about folks' origin, some struggle that they've gone through, and their emergence from that. And then we talk about what needs to be said. So Arda, jump right in. Tell me a little bit about your background. Tell the listeners um, some of your origin story and your upbringing. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I'll start from the very beginning. I am Turkish. I was raised in a, uh, a Muslim family, but I think mu- really mu- Muslim in name only, you know, like it, uh, the only thing that we did with that was particularly Muslim was uh, not eat pork. Uh, but if you had asked me when, you know, we were about as secular as secular could get as far as being Muslim was concerned. But what was very interesting is that um, I grew up traumatized by religion, if you can imagine. As little as I knew about what it meant to be Muslim, God was always used as a threat. I know you can relate to that. Now, as a, yeah. as a child, I was always seeker, always. By the time I was 10 years old, I had read the Quran, I had read the Bible, and I had read the Torah from cover to cover. Not that I understood any of it, you know, but at least the desire to learn was there. And that carried over into my life. And as I 
grew up and, um, you know, my life was challenging. I grew up uh, first generation in this country. Um, my mother, you know, there's a lot of generational trauma in my family. My mother, as a child, escaped the Soviet Union. They were from, my mother was born in a place called Karachay-Cherkessia, which is like an autonomous oblast in Russia. And when she was a little girl, Stalin was just slaughtering all of them. So they had to escape on foot. Um, and just by chance, Turkey took them in. So there's a lot of trauma there. There's a lot of trauma with her own mother um, that kind of spilled over into my relationship, or I should say lack of, with my mother. Uh, my parents were two very, very different people that should have never been married, but you know, the whole arranged marriage thing. My father was super liberal. He was an artist and, um, you know, an intellectual. And my mother was, my mother was incredibly intelligent, but she was also very, just extremely conservative. So it was this constant push and pull between these old world values um, and living in America, right? So uh, it was tough. My childhood was tough. And I grew up in a culture where um, everything was kept quiet. Illness is quiet. You don't talk about it uh, because it's almost shameful in a sense, right? Um, and I find that to be a very common ideology of the older generations. Like they see illness as being shameful. Um, you didn't talk about anything outside of the house, particularly abuse of any kind, like if you were being abused, and uh-uh, that did not leave the house. So, you know, a lot of that carried over into my life as I grew up. And to be honest, I didn't become, I never spoke about anything I endured as a, as a child until I was probably, I think, one spirit. One spirit was the first time I ever addressed anything, because just prior to it, I had, um, and one spirit being our seminary, just prior to going to One Spirit, I had, you know, you can only uh, internalize things for so long before you implode. And yeah. I was in my early 40s and I was about to, uh, I was reaching that point where I was about to implode. I got married for the wrong reasons to a wonderful guy who suffered a lot because I just was not, I was emotionally immature. I just was so... Um, I had zero self-awareness. I hadn't worked through my own trauma and anything that I endured in my life. And that, again, you know, when you have unhealed trauma, you bleed all over everybody around you. Um, so after uh, an unsuccessful marriage and just being completely detached, living outside of myself, in a sense, uh, for so many years, in my early 40s, it all came to a head. And for some reason, and not because anybody told me to do it, you know, now everybody talks about automatic writing and that kind of thing, not because anybody told me to do it because I had no direction, spiritual or otherwise, in my life. I sat down and I started writing my story. I wrote my origin story. And actually seeing it on paper was so revelatory um, that it, is, it was the beginning of what led me to seminary. And... Um, that brought me, seminary is, that those years in seminary completely transformed my life. As someone who was a spiritual seeker, I always say, I say this to Jose a lot too, our, our um, dear friend, Reverend Jose. Uh, I always say to him, one spirit, our seminary was like, 
was like group therapy, honestly, right? Because you had to get your own stuff out of the way before you could be of service in the world. Because how can you be of service if you're constantly being triggered by other people's trauma, right? Yep. So it was totally. a, it was a very very deep dive into um, into myself and to discover who I really was. And it, it took a few years, but getting to getting through all of that gave me the opportunity um, to do what I do today. And it's it's this my career is this. I'm very fortunate that I have my own career as an executive salt consultant. Um, where it's been a combination of all these things that we did in seminary, plus my my own exec, my own history as an executive professional, um, to create this space where I go into institutions, I go into um, you know academic institutions, I go into private institutions, government institutions, where I teach people about living in authenticity, but which only comes through radical radical and compassionate self-awareness and then people say well what about the you know the how do you how are you a minister if you're a humanist which is for all intents and purposes that's an atheist uh, you know I'm an atheist how do you how are you a minister yet you're a humanist but you're a shamanic practitioner like what is what does all this mean um, I am a human, I am a human, I do not believe in uh, a deity of any form, like this humanized version of what people call God, you know, these paintings that you see of God, which are essentially paintings of Zeus, and, you know, I don't, Santa. Right? <laughs> right. I don't deify uh, people, or, you know, I love, I love religion, I love the parables, I love the stories, I love the idea of Jesus, but I like the idea of Jesus as a human being. You know, I don't believe in Jesus as the son of God. You know, like that that stuff doesn't fly for me. Shamanism is something that is, well, culturally it's relevant to me because, uh, you know, as Turks, we originate from Central Asia, you know, and our first religion was, of course, you know, um, Tengrism. Tengrism is a shamanic religion. Uh, so I tend to... I am more culturally attached to it as opposed to being religiously or spiritually attached to it. Right? I'm, I, I really, really love my culture. I appreciate my culture. So, uh, so it's more that than anything else. But I also believe that ritual is very, very important for us, not for anything outside of ourselves, but for our psyche. You know, everything that I do, everything that I engage in is an extension of myself. It's for my own psyche. It's not because I'm trying to shift anything outside of myself. And it's effective. And that's why when you look at things, even in, even in the most conservative religions, right, in Catholicism and baptism, you look at, uh, in Catholicism or, or Christianity, you look at things like baptism and you look at confirmation or communion or even weddings. These things are rituals. They're life, they're, they're markers of, momentous events and even birthdays look at the tradition of birthdays we blow out candles on a cake people don't realize that is ritual you know every day is a ritual getting up for me it's getting up it's having my coffee it's sitting down believe it or not reading my horoscope uh reading a couple path passages in whatever book i'm reading uh, checking my emails that's a ritual 
you know, ritual grounds us. It's something that makes us feel good. It's continuity in our lives, which is very important. Um, Definitely. And as far as being a minister, I see minister as a verb. To me, to be able to be, to minister to somebody is to hold space. And it's not, and I can hold space for anybody. It doesn't matter what their beliefs are. It doesn't matter their religious uh, tradition, their spirituality. None of that matters. It's just a matter of being present to someone in a time of need. And I can do that for anybody. And I do it happily. If you saw my, um, the people that I work with, including my clients, the diversity is just astounding. You know, you want to talk about people on the opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, yeah, so it's, and it, it's also something that gets easier, I think, with age. You know, when we're younger, we tend to be a little bit more, oh, I can't relate to them, or I can't, you know, it's as you get older, you really manage to see what life is about. Um, Definitely. And it, it changes the way you move through the world. It certainly changed, Definitely. you know, the way I move through the world. Yeah, for sure. That's all beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, will you tell me kind of who really shaped your early life? Like, were there any big influences, whether it was your parents directly or family members or other people in the community? Like, was there any specific person? No, I, it shaped my life in a positive way. Is that what you mean? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it could be negative yeah. though too. I, I will, suppose, yeah. Whatever. I never had any sort of positive influence um, in my life. I grew up believing that I was a burden. Well, I was told I was a burden. You know what I mean. So my existence was—I was the bane of my mother's existence. Um, so when you don't have that grounding, you know, it, it really kind of sets the tone for the rest of your life. And I didn't have any. It, it's interesting because as my my parents were very, my mother especially was very, uh, she adhered to the customs of her culture, which were so strict. I can't even say it's religion. It wasn't even founded in religion. It was these, these cultural norms at that time, you know, um, that she still carried over into the United States, into you know, when I was born, the 1970s, 80s, 90s, like even when I got, at the time that I got, uh, was start, started seeing my now ex-husband, like she still had this old world ideology that just, so I did not have anybody that I could turn to. I could not be, remember, everything had to be kept quiet. Nothing was taken out of the house. I didn't have anybody that I could talk to. Um, I didn't have anybody that I could confide in. I didn't have anybody to look up to. My mother's own siblings have no idea of what I endured in the house. And they wouldn't believe it on, and anyway, because, you know, that's another story in itself. But um, no, I really grew up kind of, in hindsight, floundering. You know, really, really floundering. And it didn't, I, again, didn't realize any of this. I thought everybody's life was this way, you know, until I was in my forties. Yeah. And did they, so how did that struggle work with this sort of your mom's very conservatism of her cultural and your dad sort of out there, you know, did you have any religious tradition or things in your family because of that imbalance? You know, no. If you have, if I was a kid, if you even asked me what like the Islamic holidays were, I had no idea. I had no clue. 
you know? Um, I mean, we, we had a Christmas tree, <laughs> you know, uh, and it, it was all the Christian holidays that were more relevant to me growing up. Um, so there was no grounding whatsoever, you know, not in any kind of faith, not, not even in our culture. You know, my love for my culture developed as I got older. So I think my, you know, my parents were just so incompatible that they were just doing their best to survive. Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I look back and I see um, what sacrifices they made for us as children. And, uh, you know, they came, it's really interesting because they came to a country that they didn't have to come to. My father was about to run for governor in um, Ankara, which is the capital of Turkey, when, they, when he met my mother. She was going to law school. She was going to be, um, she wanted to be like, what was the equivalent of a judge, a Supreme Court judge, that type of thing. They moved to the States because my mother's youngest brother wanted to come to the United States. So my grandmother said, well, if he's going, we're all going. And my father just followed my mother here. And it was like, I mean, I can't imagine. I'm grateful because I am here, right, as a result of them. But you want to talk about just doomed from the start. You know, it really was. That's hard. That's hard. Well, I think that kind of leads us into tell me about some sort of significant personal challenge, obstacle, the struggle that you really faced then. One of my biggest struggles, I had no self-worth. I didn't realize that I didn't have any self-worth until, you know, and, and dysfunction breeds dysfunction. Every relationship I had was as dysfunctional as my relationship was at home. And what I was doing was repeating my relationship with my mother over and over and over again. Um, it was, it was just at that point where I felt like I can't do this anymore. Like, I, what is this about? And again, because I had that, um, that nature, that seeker's nature, every day I would wake up and I would say, is this it? Because on paper, if you looked at my life when I was with my ex-husband, I had the life that I would say many women dream of, you know, I had everything and I had a husband who was, you know, was willing to hand me the world on a silver platter. And I led a very, very comfortable life. Um, I had a good career that I, at, at some point, gave up because it was just, you know, and I would wake up every morning, at, and I'm an early riser, so even at that time, I would get up at like 5 a.m. and I would sit in the living room. My husband was asleep, and I would say, is this it? Is this really it? And that led to a series of bad decisions. I wouldn't say they were bad decisions. It was the way I went about them. It wasn't particularly, again, remember, I had no direction. I had no, I always think of myself, what's that kid that grew up in the jungle, that children's book? Um, uh, yeah. Um, Mowgli, is that the kid's name? <laughs> yes, or is that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that book, totally. uh, whatever the Jungle Book, isn't that the name the of the Jungle Book? Yes, I, yes. I totally. have, when I tell you, I had no direction whatsoever. Um, I grew up essentially on my own, despite having two parents, despite living under the same roof as them. You know, I essentially grew up yeah. by myself and uh, made discovered everything through trial and error. 
it was that point where I got to the point where I was going to explode that, um, and I put it all on paper. I don't usually tell this story. I, very few people know this story, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'll tell you here. Uh, I'll tell your listeners. Seminary was the catharsis for me and how I ended up there. I decided that, um, I wanted to quit my job. At this point, I had left my husband, and I was living on my own. And out of the blue, I said, I, I, my job was becoming such, uh, it was becoming, I was starting to, to develop such a contentious feeling towards it because it wasn't what I wanted to do. Like, I just felt like, oh, there's more, there's more, there's more. And at the time, it was a really, again, I seemed to have the dream job. I was traveling all over. I was in the beauty industry. So, um you know, I was the director of education, artistic director for this cosmetic company. So I was traveling the world and, you know, doing shows, doing education. It was just a life, again, that seemed very, very glamorous and a lot of people would have enjoyed, but it just wasn't right for me. And every day I kept saying, is this it? Is this it? I thought once I left my husband, the, is this it was going to end? It didn't. It didn't end. So, um, I just got it in my head. I said, I'm going to quit my job. Now, mind you, I had nothing else to fall back on. Absolutely nothing. I didn't know where I was going to, you know, and I said, you know what? I'm going to quit my job. And I said, my mother had passed away at this point. And I said directly to my mother, and I never did this. I said out loud, I said, you know what, Ma, I have never asked you for anything in life or in death. I said, nor have you ever done anything for me. I said, so... I'm asking you right now, I want to sign a clear sign as to whether I should quit my job. I said, no qualms about it. I need to know. Forgot that I even asked the question, you know, went about my day. I went outside. I, I was walking my dog in the park across the street. Um, same park, same walk, same route that I've been doing for years. All of a sudden I'm walking, walking, walking. I look down. And on the ground, at my feet, I see a little green apple, a little green crab apple. And I look up, and I'm standing under a tree filled with little green crab apples. Now, I've lived in, I've been walking my dog in this park for years. I have never seen any of the trees, you know, a, an apple tree, a little green crab. No, never, never. I picked it up. My mother used to eat while she was pregnant with me would eat little green crab apples uh, dipped in salt. She said that was the one thing that she always craved. I took that green, wow. I took that little crab apple and ran all the way home. So I got into my living room and I'm like hyperventilating at this point. And I said, all right, okay, 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 mom, okay. I said, I get it. I said, fine. Now, now I need to know where, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? And I need, spe I need specificity here. I need you to be really specific about it. Again, went about my day, went to the gym. So I go to the gym, I walk over to a weight bench and somebody has a magazine, somebody left a magazine on the weight bench. I pick up the magazine and I go to flip it shut and I look at it and what does it say? One Spirit Learning Alliance. I go, that's it. I don't know what this place is, but this is the place that I'm supposed to be. <laughs> I ran all the way back home, got online, immediately looked it up and I called, and within 
this all happened within a matter of like, I want to say two hours, right? And uh, I called, spoke to the then director of admissions and uh, started the process. And that's how I ended up in seminary. Wow. I mean, what a story. You couldn't make that up. You You were like, you know, the best writer in the world. People be like, no, that's made up. Like, that's spectacular. It sounds crazy. It sounds, honestly, um, it sounds crazy, but that's really how it happened. And I almost walked out on the first day of seminary. Um, Interesting. uh, Because... I was like, I said, oh my God, once I finally got there and the first day started and I was looking around and I said, oh my God, what am I doing here? Like, this is so not for me. This is so not right. for me. So, you know, on the first day, how they make you stand up and, t- and, and I'm watching all these people. And who, at the time, I didn't even know the word, the terms religious trauma. Like, I didn't even know that existed, much less what they meant. Right. So all these people, yeah. I'm looking at all these people around me that are crying, you know, talking about their... And I'm getting really anxious because I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I have, I, I can't totally. relate to these people. I don't know what they're talking about. So of course, being very vocal, as I have always been and opinionated, um, I stood up in the middle of, I guess it was my turn with the microphone. I don't know what. And you can ask them. They will tell you the story. They'll tell you it's true. Ask Jose this story because he was witness to it. I stood up and I said, listen. As I'm looking around this room, um, I, I realize that this is really not the place for me. So I'm going to be leaving. I wish you all the best of luck. You know, take care. And I, right. I, I, I'm sure I'm, that wasn't verbatim what I'm, I said. I'm sure it was actually, I'm sure whatever it was that I said was probably a little bit more abrasive. Um, yeah. So as soon as, as soon as I said what I said, I think they broke for lunch. I was out the door. I was I was at the elevator. <laughs> Peace out. I was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> then, and the, I still to this day remember the way Diane was looking at me when I was um, saying this. And you know how Diane, Diane, who was the spiritual director of our school, Reverend Diane Burke, completely unaffected. Yeah. Expressionless. Not, not you um, know, you would expect judgment, you know, from nothing. Just absolutely yeah. nothing. Yep. Um, and just really with compassion, you know, looking at me with compassion on her face. And I was like, this lady's weird. All of these people are weird. I'm leaving. Um, (laughs) so I get to the elevator was, did you ever get to meet Joyce? I don't think I did. She was on Uh, zoom. I met her via zoom the first week of my classes. You want to talk about people who influenced your life. Joyce was one of, one of the people that she was. A mentor. She was a friend. She was. She meant a lot to me. And uh, I was about to. I hit the. I'm about to walk into the elevator, and all of a sudden, I feel somebody touch my elbow. And I look, and you know, jo- Joyce was tiny. So I looked down. And I yeah. was like, "Who is this little woman with big, big, big blue eyes?" She looks at me and she says, "Look, I know you feel like you don't belong here." She said, "I, but I want you to know that you do." She said, "It's, it's." I was trying to remember exactly what she said. It was something along the lines of um, people like you. We, we need people like you because you will be a voice for the voiceless. And I, I was like, okay, lady. And I got in the elevator and I'm hightailing it down 8th Avenue. And then what she said kept rolling over in my mind. 
And I was like, who is this woman spouting wisdom at me like Yoda? You know, like, who is this little woman? So totally. that's literally what made me go back. Um, wow. I, when I went back, and you can imagine everybody's faces when they saw me walk back in. I walked back in with my tail totally. between my legs and yeah. went and sat back down. And, um, and that was the beginning. And anybody who was of real influence in my life, anyone who uh, became a mentor, anyone who, you know, changed me for the better was part of my transformation was from one spirit. And Joyce was one of those people. It's beautiful. It makes me think too, you kind of saying, you know, your dad and your family's dynamic was you don't talk about things outside of the house. You don't share things. So coming into that room probably did feel just like, what in the hell is this universe where people are crying and sharing? And it's like a group therapy session, you know, where people are just that vulnerable and open And it probably was just almost literally talk about culture shock, you know, just being like, what in the heck is going on here? Because that's not just at all what you had ever probably experienced or even knew that was like a possibility that you were, that it was free and comfortable and safe to talk like that in that kind of environment. The the idea of showing vulnerability, any kind of vulnerability was so foreign to me that to do it in a room full of strangers was inconceivable. And I was so uncomfortable. I was yeah, so, I so, thought. so uncomfortable um, that I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine. And that. you know how it goes. Once, of course, you start, you get used to it, and then you, you know, you're the most vocal person. <laughs> you know, you end up being the most vocal person in the room. Um, but yeah, that was what it was. One, it was a great experience. Um, and it kind of set me on the path of where I am now. And believe it or not, seminary was, is what turned me into an atheist. <laughs> seminary is what made me, um, I'm a humanist through and through. I'm an existentialist. I believe fully that we are responsible for our own happiness. And I believe that, I don't believe in any of the, you know, I believe that we're all dealt certain hands. Some are great. Some are not. Some of us really get the shit end of the stick. Some of us don't. And it's, I don't think there's any purpose for it. I don't think it's because anybody's chosen to do this or that. I think it's just, you know, it's the the luck of the draw. And what we make of it, if we're lucky enough to have the resources to be able to pull ourselves out of it, you know, not everybody does. You know, so I, I don't like to engage in any of this spiritual bypassing that I see so much of. And it's not just in Christian communities, like these two blessed to be stressed people. It's not even, you know, it's not just that. There's a lot of people that are, um, people that are more into nature spirituality. Um, A lot of these new age practitioners that have that same type of ideology. And I find it infuriating personally, because it really diminishes the experience of people who are suffering. Totally. Um, so yeah, I'm a humanist through and through. Definitely. Like that toxic positivity Ugh. where it's just like, look on the bright side of everything and all of that. And it's just like, I'll slap you. Yeah. That, listen, that toxic po- positivity, that um, 
pull yourself up by the bootstraps bullshit is who I shouldn't swear. I'm sorry, especially. No, we're good. <laughs> okay. I, don't worry. <laughs> um, I just checked the little box that says explicit and we're all good. <laughs> that I, I find that type of mentality absolutely infuriating. It's, it's what I like to call the spirituality of privilege. It's, mm. um, it's the me spirituality. It's the, yeah. it's all about manifesting and, you know, that kind of stuff. It just don't even get me started on yeah. that kind of stuff because it infuriates yeah. me. But, spirituality, but as enough. I see it, the way I define spirituality, spirituality is the cultivation of your inner life. Well, people say to me, how can you be spiritual if you're an atheist or a humanist? Because to me, spirituality is the cultivation of our inner life. And everybody wants meaning. Everybody wants to lead a life of meaning. So spirituality is cultivating what that means to you. What does it mean to lead a life, a meaningful life? How do you navigate your inner world? That is spirituality. And how you navigate your inner world is how is going to determine how you interact with the world around you. So spirituality, it begins with the reflection of the self. It starts, spirituality, as I see it, requires that you turn inward and then, when you've done what needs to be done there, you turn outward and you bring it out into the world. In whatever service is most suitable for your skill set or what, you know, whatever it is. But spirituality to me is about service. It's about making the world a better place. Whatever that means and whatever that look like, looks like for you. Beautiful. Yeah, agreed. What did you learn about yourself during seminary and during this process of coming through that space where you didn't even really know in a way who you were? It was all coming to a head. It was all about to explode. Then you come step into this place where everybody's so emotive and sharing their feelings and their emotions and all of that stuff, you know, coming through onto the other side of that. Um, you know, what did you really learn about yourself? Um, how, how, how fucked up I really was, you know, how emotionally damaged, um, you know, damages, I don't like the word damage, but how, how, how traumatized I actually was, you know, I had no idea what, how traumatized I was. I had no idea that what I suffered constituted abuse. Even now, even today, I hesitate saying it because there's a part of me that fears it in some sense. You know what I mean? Fear is saying it out loud that somebody like my, on my mother's side of the family will hear it and they'll invalidate it. You know what I mean? But, but the truth is I was brutalized. I was brutalized as a kid, absolutely brutalized. And the fact that um, I, I once had a therapist and I didn't go to therapy until much later in my life. She said to me, well, what's your choice of, of um, how do you, how do you deal with it? What's your, I can't remember exactly what she said. It was kind of like, what's your medication of choice? I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, do you drink? Do you do drugs? I was like, no, no, no. She eventually said, it is in, she said, I can't believe that you don't drink or, you know, you don't have a vice of some sort to help you cope. She said, because you're, and she should have never said this to me. She said, your story is one of the worst I've ever heard. Um, and she said, I just, I can't believe that you're still standing. So to have somebody validate that experience, my experience that way, made, it was such an eye opener for me that I said, oh my God, so I'm not crazy. You know, like this is really, 
it's legitimate and it's not I'm not being crazy I'm not being overly one spirit really allowed me to bring that into view as well as um and one spirit was just the beginning like you know it, it's what opened the door for for much bigger things um it allowed me to see that how removed I was from myself. I didn't, I lived outside of myself as a form of, you know, you live outside of yourself as a form of, I was so detached. I was so, that if you asked me how I was feeling, I couldn't give you an honest answer. When I would go to the doctor and because something was wrong and they would say, well, where is the pain? I knew there was pain, but I couldn't tell you where it was coming from. I couldn't articulate. Um, I, my appendix burst and they were asking me, I remember the doctor saying, does it hurt here? I was like, I, I don't know. You know, I couldn't, I was so detached from my physical self and yet developing self-awareness is just going through all of that allows me to do what I do today because what do we do? We teach, teachers teach what they themselves need to learn. And it never stops, it never ends, because you, you continue fighting these same battles. You still have these same demons, they don't dissipate. You just learn to deal with them in a different way. Um, and they don't consume you. And you can, it's, and, and that's what people say when they ask me about healing, well, when does it get better? I said, nothing ever really gets better. You just learn how to cope with it without it consuming you. It doesn't go away. Your problems don't go away. I wish I could say that they did. You know, they lessen. You know, they become easier to cope with, but they become the foundation from where you, you know, develop the skill to help others yeah. without bleeding all over them. Totally. And I'd say, you know, back to your therapist asking you, do you have a vice or whatever? Your vice, what you did was disassociate from it. That's how you survived it. You just separated out like your body's over here, you're over here, and these are two th two different things. And that's how you survived it. And, and I didn't have it. the language. I didn't have the language to not only explain that to her, I, would, I was probably afraid to tell her. Because that was a time where I couldn't even be fully honest, you know? Totally. Um, and I'm sure you understand. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, I've definitely my, you know, the whole approach of mind, you know, your head doing the psychology, doing that work, doing therapy, spiritual stuff. And then the body stuff, the body has always been the hardest part for me. Like I've been, you know, I started in therapy in college, somehow just realizing I need help from someone else who could talk about this and give me ideas or whatever. You know, I started spiritual work in my late twenties, early thirties, but the body part, I mean, I think being trans doesn't help that. Um, but I think I also really disassociated from like my body's been trying to kick me out of this humanness since I came out of the womb. I mean, I was like deathly sick at three weeks, a month old, like in the hospital, almost died. And that's been my battle ever. It's like we've been in this battle back and forth. And so, uh, you know, I think I understand that sort of disassociation and sort of just having to step away from it and not really knowing how to express what it's feeling, what it needs, what's going on. And I think 
um, you know, that embodiment piece is a powerful, um, strong thing that needs healing as well. And that's a hard, you know, I think that's a whole nother adventure. Sometimes it's not necessarily just the talking about it in therapy and processing through and, you know, even all the shamanic, I think the shamanic work for me has helped me the most to embody weirdly, because you're sort of not in your body, right. When you're doing that work. Um, but in a way that's helped me to like reclaim parts of myself and to like get more in touch with myself and my body. And, and that's probably the most predominant work I do is, okay, what do I need to integrate now? <laughs> Guides show me what to integrate today. How can I like become, you know, more fully in myself and in this body and in this place and, and all of that stuff. So I definitely relate. What's so interesting about shamanism is that shamanism is a, and it's an embodied practice, right? Shamanism yeah. is about, it's, it's not just about the mind and spirit. It is about the body. Um, and that's probably part of the reason why I was drawn to it as well, right? There's a certain amount of, yes, as much as you are living in these other realms when you are um, engaged in shamanic practice, there's, you're very grounded and you're connected to all of creation in a way that I don't think we are taught, um, whether it be through religion or whatever, you know, shamanism is about this real, really, really deep sense of connection. Um, and it was shamanism that really opened my eyes to interconnection and how, how important that is and how real it is, how real and, you know, that's, this is not some flighty, um, you know, spiritual ideology. Interconnection is very real. What I do, what I say on a daily basis matters. It matters because it affects you. It affects, um, you know, we don't realize what a profound effect we have on each other's lives, even on opposite sides of the, opposite sides of the planet. Interconnection is very, very real. You know, if you, and I, you know, look at, Look at climate change. It is a perfect example of how interconnection works. Um, and that's a very real thing. And that's what shamanism is rooted in. You know, shamanism is rooted in that. That's why I find it to be such a powerful practice. I agree. I mean, I think we get lost in, even in spirituality and in like the religion, especially we're lost in this separation, in this separateness of, hey, we don't belong to one another. We're not part of the same whole. And we have lost sight of that interconnectedness. You know, I was talking, um, I was on another guy's podcast recently and I was saying how, you know, I think a problem we're facing now is that we don't live in community anymore, right? We don't live realizing 100%. that what I do affects my neighbor across the street, affects everyone down the street, all those things. We've moved away from that so tremendously that we have literally lost sight of the forest through the trees. You know, we 100%. just are just lost. And we just are like on our phones in this world. We're not even engaging. You know, I go to a restaurant and see people. They're not even talking to each other. They're just on their phones looking at other things. You know, we're so disconnected from that interconnectedness. And and I agree. Like the, the shamanism for me is this part that brought me home to myself um, that really like helped me 
find these ways to go back in time in a way to 100%. those younger versions of myself and heal things that and say things to that self that certainly the parents and the adults in the situation never could have said and basically the opposite even of what they were actually saying in those situations and i just think it's just such a powerful tool um, because of that lack of interconnection that we have that we just think we're just these separate we're in silos constantly. Yes. You well, know? you have to and remember, Alex, we live in a country that promotes rugged individualism. Yep. Yep. You know, we live in and a And it's society. finally bitten us in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, yes, it has. We live in a country that promotes rugged individualism. Um, and it is, we are suffering the repercussions of that. Yeah. And so is the whole globe because of that. You Absolutely. Know, not just the planet, but all of the people, the animals, everything. Cause we are, whether we like it or not, we are a leader at the forefront of what's happening in the world. And we set an example that says, Hey, everybody just do what we're doing. And this, this whole idea is just, you know, I, it's hard for me because I think going back to what you said, everything really starts with an inside job. There's a lot of, I think even a lot of religion tends to get very out of themselves oriented. Like what can we do out in the world? We should be, you know, on one end of the spectrum, it could be evangelizing and converting people to our religion. On the other end, it could be doing good deeds, helping the poor, helping the sick, you know, there, but it's always this external thing. And again, if we don't do that internal work, it's like everything we do out there ends up sort of being a little bit vacant and a little bit in vain because we're not healing that part of ourselves. And I think that's, you know, for me, I think that's some of the most powerful work that I've done is again, going back to the shamanism and even seminary as well. It led me back inside the sort of halls of this, you know, and into these like hallowed halls and, and helped me find a way for this to become holy ground. Because this has never been holy ground, you know, in, in my life. And I'm sure you felt like that, too. If people were like, you're kind of the vein of our existence, you probably didn't feel like what you were in was holy ground either. And um, and that's powerful to come to that place and finally be able to see yourself as holy ground. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you have emerged out of sort of that struggle out of the lack of authenticity, out of the sort of pushing away who you were and who your family was in a way and, and, you know, the sharing being open, you know, cause I see you and who I know today is a different person um, who is so much more open and big hearted and has wants to give and share. I mean, what you're doing and your work in the world is about helping people to also find that authenticity um, that you took all of those years to find yourself. So tell me how you emerged from that. Um, how did I emerge from that? Or are you asking how did I get into doing what it is that I do now? Or, um, both that and also your own personal, you know, emerging out of that struggle. And maybe it's that we're always emerging, right? We're always in that constant evolution and you know, flow, as you said. I actually, I was, I'm, I'm in the process of doing this, um, training there's a training i'm facil facilitating for a particular institution and it's personal and professional development i do i've done it for different people this particular institution that i'm doing it for i just said to them 
I was talking about values and how if you're not, you're either moving towards or you're moving away from your values. And if your values are static, there is a problem. Because we, are, we change on a daily basis. Every day we're growing, we're constantly changing, or at least we should be. And I always say, if, you're, if your spirituality is the same as it was when you started your journey, you are doing something wrong. And I look at these people that have been members of the same church or, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, you know where I'm going with this. When you look yep. at people who have, if you think the same way about spirituality that you did when you first started um, learning about it or maybe questioning it, then something's wrong because there yep, has that's to the be, problem. right, there has to be an evolution. Is there anything wrong with Christianity? Not Christianity per se, it is the way Christianity is practiced and perceived. Same thing with any other organized religion, right? You have to, like Ram, Ram Das always, he said that he has a great book, great book, Polishing the Heart. It's one of my favorite books. Every Religion should point you in that direction, right? To polish your heart, like I said, then turn it outward. Um, I have evolved so much. Like if you spoke to me, the day after I graduated seminary, I am a completely different person from whoever that person was on that day back in, what year did I graduate? 2016, I can't remember. Um, entirely different because every day there's an evolution and I will continue to evolve until the day I die. And I see as I'm evolving every day, my work is changing. The work that I'm doing in the world is changing and it's just getting better. Because every day I, I am becoming more and more and more authentic. And I've worked with so many different types of people. You remember there's a period that I was working strictly with LGBTQIA plus youth. You know, yep. that has affected my journey in a really profound way. Because now I've lived this two, three years, however many years it was that I was working with these kids that have experienced things that I could never give personal voice to right so as you do all these things and you move through the world and you see the you see what people need and it doesn't people it doesn't matter who they are people need compassion people need understanding people don't need your judgment they don't need your opinion they don't need your advice people need compassion and that's there's so much more of that in my work um, it's not about telling people who they should be. It's, a, it's allowing them to be. And anything or any, any religion, any ideology that's telling you who you are supposed to be is garbage. It should allow you to be whoever it is that you are, right? So as I'm becoming more authentic, I'm bringing more authenticity into my work and, um, and it just changes every, every, Every day it changes more and more, and and it's it's just from lived experience. It's true that with age, age comes wisdom, right? And my lived experience has is what is bringing me every day further and further into this, you know, into this space that I love so much. Beautifully said. Well, in your line of work, in your area of expertise, what else would you say needs to be said? That. Um, I cannot stress enough how important it is for people to step into their authenticity, whatever that means, whoever you are, wherever you are, 
And I understand, and this is something I think is really important to say, I understand that you, some of us may be at a place where you cannot step into your authenticity because it is dangerous for you. Make the plans, make the preparations. If it means you're financially dependent on somebody in a situation and you can't be your authentic self, get yourself into a space. Put the work in to get yourself into a place where you can be authentic, right? I cannot stress the importance of this. What the world needs is people to live authentically because pretending to be living as something or someone that you are not is not only are you harming yourself, you're harming the world or you're bringing harm to the world around you. And I know that sounds crazy, but I cannot tell you. Uh, I, I, I don't think truer words have ever been spoken. Personal authenticity is the most important thing, along with radical self-awareness. Um, if we were all living authentically, all of us, and very few people are, no matter what they tell you, very few people are living authentically. If we were all living authentically, you would not see a fraction of the pain and suffering and the violence and the wars. Yep. And you wouldn't see any of it. No, there wouldn't be any need for it. None. Yeah. And that's what people don't understand. And that's something yeah. that I really believe needs to be said and understood. Beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, as we close out, I like to ask a fun question to kind of uh, end it all. So we've had a serious conversation and I love to ask, uh, this one's a good one for you. I know you have dogs, so this <laughs> is a fun one I like to ask. Okay. If you could have a conversation with your pet or pets uh -huh. and they could actually understand and respond to you, what is the first thing that you would ask them? Oh my gosh. Um, what can I do to bring you more joy? Beautiful. That is right in the heart space. Beautiful. I love that. Well, tell everyone where they can find you if they're if they're looking for you to connect with you. I am on uh, Instagram. I am at. Good Lord, I don't even know my own. <laughs> I don't even you know my own. You can give me the handle. Instagram handle. Actually, I, I'll put them in the show notes. I think it's Arda A R D A Z N P. Arda okay. ZNP. I'm on Instagram. Um, you can check me out there. Also, I'm in the process. I have to create a website. I have a lot of stuff going on. Uh, I've just, I haven't had an opportunity. I'm also on LinkedIn as well. Um, but I, I, I'll be creating a website soon. I'll be facilitating retreats. The first one will be next year um, in Turkey. That will start in Istanbul and we'll head down to the turquoise coast. And it's really about spiritual wellness, people of all, you know, this, but this one is specifically for, will be specifically for women of a certain age. Um, but it's, I'm going to open it up to uh, everybody in a short period of time. And it's really going to be about cultivating spiritual wellness and developing helping people step into their authenticity much like the workshops that we do but we're going to be in a you know spectacular setting on the Aegean coast so beautiful I'm coming one day I would one love to have you I would love to have you and you could even facilitate um you know on one of the days I think it could be spectacular I love it we'll make a plan well I just want to say I love you 
I'm grateful to know you and to have, you know, this experience of our friendship, but also just uh, to be a part of the work that you're doing in the world. We all need more of this and it's so important. So thank you. Oh, I just adore you. And thank you for having me on, Alex. Can't wait to see you soon. Thanks. You too. All right. Thanks everybody for being here. We'll see you next week on What Needs to Be Said. Bye.